Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast uh, exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay, and uh, this is another episode in our series from the Byron Writers Festival at Byron Bay. Make sure you do check them out on social media. The Byron Writers Festival, always a highlight of the year if you are in that part of Australia. Sue Grimmett is with me today as we... Uh, we are very happy, very excited to, to host uh, someone who is no stranger to Christians in Australia. Tim Costello joins the On The Way podcast. Wonderful to be with you, Dom. And isn't it great to be at a Writers' Festival? Oh, it's very, very stimulating. Fantastic and this, this, is, uh, this is days, I believe, after the publication of your memoir? It is. Uh, it got launched in Melbourne on Tuesday night. Yes. And uh, so, yeah, very good timing for me. Uh, the, the memoir is called A Lot With A Little. It is out now. Now, obviously, your CV is extensive, Tim. Um, Baptist minister, many would know you as the former CEO of World Vision Australia, um, now a senior fellow at the Centre for Public Christianity, and um, you've got a brother some people might have known of at some time as well. So there's, there's a whole bunch of reasons people might have come to know you in your, your working life. I, su- I suppose before we get into, there's a lot we want to cover in today's conversation, things like what it is to be a Christian in Australia in, in 2019 and, and onwards, and you know what sort of the challenges are that, that face us. But, but just to start with, the experience of sitting down and writing your memoir after a pretty extraordinary and varied and, I imagine, unpredictable life, how was it to, to sit down behind the computer and, and, I guess, reflect on your life? How, what was that experience like? Well, I was just saying to you uh, before we began this that I'd written Hope, Faith. I started to write Love. And uh, over the dinner table, my wife said, nah. I don't think you know enough about love. And that rather paralysed me. <laughs> so I thought, all right, I'll uh, work out who I am by writing a memoir. So the, the experience was trying to explain the mystery we are to ourselves. And I think this is true for all of us. Uh, for me, the mystery uh, was I never wanted to be a CEO. I didn't like management, but I managed uh, the biggest charity in Australia for 13 years. I didn't want to be a lawyer. I did law because it was the longest degree at university and I didn't want to work. <laughs> and then after finishing law, I did a diploma of education because I still didn't want to work. Um, six weeks of teacher training convinced me law was a pretty good idea. <laughs> uh, and then uh, being a reverend. Uh, so I'm very well known as a reverend in Australia, but I describe in the book The Crisis at My Ordination, where the ordinands before me had a clear call from God, unmistakable, unchallengeable to become a minister. And my crisis was I didn't. And I did. I was becoming a reverend because the little church at St Kilda Baptist, where I started ministry, had 10 elderly people. And they'd never had an ordained minister for 30 years, and it was very important to them. Um, all the wrong reasons to get ordained. Uh, so the puzzle of um, who I am and what made me who I am it was a, a good experience to sit down and work through in this memoir. What was the most, as you reflected back on your life, what was the thing as you were writing it that you're like, I suppose, reflecting on it, thinking, I can't believe I did this or I can't believe this happened? If, if you had to rank just the, the top thing that you still can't, can't quite believe occurred, whether it's a single day, a place you visited, a, a thing you did, what, what would that be? No, that's very easy to answer. I can't believe I uh, became a CEO. Um, Look, a lawyer, yes, I did study law and uh, a reverend sort of because I was pastoring, but I'd set up a law practice within the St Kilda Baptist Church. Um, 
But to become a CEO of World Vision is the most puzzling because um, the board would give me management books to read and I'd get glazed-eyed and throw them over my shoulder because I just wasn't interested at all in management. Um, I think I um, managed to do okay in the job as a CEO because I chose good people really to manage and I was a good vision caster, a leader, not a manager. But after my first day as CEO, uh, my wife, wife woke me the next day, time to go to work. I literally pulled the doona over my head and I said, I don't want to go. You go. You be the CEO. Uh, that, that was a big step to managing a budget of $400 million with uh, 500, 600 staff. Um, that's the most surprising thing um, that really did happen to me. And, and on your work with World Vision, I mean, obviously that took you to some, some very unusual, um, very interesting places that most of us will only ever think about. And that's what's fascinating, I guess, reading about your story is that to, to most of us, third world poverty and crisis zones, um, you know, after natural disasters, things like this are mostly theoretical. We, we see images on the news, we see videos, you know, come through our Facebook feed or whatever. Maybe one or two of us have done a mission trip or something like that. But for most of us, it's pretty, pretty much just a concept. To you, it's a reality that you, you have visited many times. How extensively have you visited those sorts of areas and, and spent time with those people? I've gone to every disaster in the world for the last 15 and a half years. Nothing prepares you for the uh, trauma. The smell of death, you don't realise that death smells. Mass graves in the tsunami. Uh, shocking visually, but it's a smell in hot climates. That was up in Sri Lanka and then Bandayache. Um, for the, just the sheer overwhelming nature of it, sometimes it's the natural disaster, which at one level is easier to reconcile in your mind because um, the volcanoes, earthquakes, tsunamis... Uh, a natural evil, if we can call it that, is just beyond uh, our control. What's within our control is when it's human-made disaster because of war and conflict and systematic rape of women. And um, nothing ever has answered for me the question of how humans can be that cruel, that malevolent. Uh, most humans I know um, have a look in the mirror and want a good story to tell about themselves and try to be empathetic and generous and yet there is this wiring for evil uh, in conflict. So uh, coming face to face with that um, is still something I'm working through, what the memoir is trying to work through too. Tim, I wonder, whenever anyone has travelled that widely and seen that many disasters as well as that many conflict zones, the, the human-made violence... Um, I wonder how you come back to Australia and then have a sense of the interconnectedness of things. You know, I think as Christians we have this uh, awareness that we are all connected, that there is what, what happens elsewhere does directly concern us. Um, but I wonder how you see that, how when you come back um, and people are oblivious to those connections, is there a, a disjoint for you in returning and how, how do you see us moving forward um, in this global community? Yeah, I think it's where my Christian faith is really important. Christian faith is profoundly internationalist. It says the uh, 
image of God is just as significant and sacred in the East Timorese or Mozambican as it is in my children. And the profound, um, radical, novel notion of Christian faith in Christ, neither male nor female, there's not gender superiority or uh, free or slave, social economic superiority or Jew or Greek, racial superiority, we are equal. In fact, I often think the, the most significant verse in the Bible, though it's a bit negative, is Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and all have fallen short, meaning no one's superior. There's no category that says that uh, somehow, because I'm Australian and my passport gives me privileges, that uh, God loves me and my children more than the kids I've seen in suffering places. So Christian faith is international. Um, it, it gets tested all the time, even by Christians. Uh, you come back to Australia. I don't expect Australians to um, understand what I've seen, but when you, with passion, are trying to communicate what you've seen, knowing people who you've seen, you, their only hope is you telling their story, raising some funds, giving them some chance to rebuild their lives, and you live with guilt that you don't do it well enough, and Australians' eyes glaze over after a short hearing and they go, who's playing in the cricket tonight? Who's playing in the footy? Um, and what is worse then is uh, a sense that the world is retribalizing this attitude that not our responsibility, we're just going to look after ourselves, stuff the rest. Um, I have no responsibility to give or to even expose myself to that pain. That, that is very difficult to deal with. And... Um, you know, on an emotional level, I find myself sometimes giving a speech, non-world vision related, happy occasion, out of nowhere. I will have a glimpse of someone I've seen in a refugee camp who I've talked to and heard their story, and I'll be in tears, just like that. And people will go, that's odd. Why is he crying mid-speech? What's going on? And you realise that you, try, you have to build compartments around your emotions just to keep going but the compartments leak <laughs> and, you, and the, the emotions hemorrhage. I'm interested in what fueled you through this, this life of social justice and, and public service in that way, in the, in the sense that I don't think there's many of us who would, would not be a bit traumatised by one visit to a war-torn country. And you've just continued to go back. You were World Vision CEO for, was it 13 years? 13 years, chief advocate after that. You, you, it's almost as though you stared this straight in the eye again and again and you wouldn't let it defeat your spirit of compassion. Is that, is that accurate? And if so, how did you do yeah. that? Look, there's many times I wanted to give up and said, done my bit. Um, and I describe it in those moments like a, a divine whisper in my soul. God saying, well, I haven't given up on this broken world. I love it. And the perspective is you're not the Messiah. <laughs> you're, not, you're not able to save everyone, but this sense of call until I say, God says, you know, um, move on, that uh, I, without messianic pretensions, nonetheless say I can still do something. I can still go back. I can still face this. Now, the resources for me are spiritual. Uh, faith... Faith is really the only resource many of the world's poorest in uh, disaster zones have. You know, we, 
have the luxury here of asking the question, well, where's God and if he's good and all-powerful, how come? And Well, when you're suffering a disaster, you have nothing. And I have observed time and time again, it is people's faith, it might be Buddhist or Muslim or Hindu or Christian faith, that actually is the only resource to give them the strength to get out of bed, to start rebuilding, to go on. So that faith that I see in them, when I would say humanly, there's no point, just give up. <laughs> this is hopeless. That faith that begets hope, it's actually true for me too. That faith that says there is hope, there is purpose, uh, we can go through this has been what, what has sustained me. I can imagine it must be hard when you get off the plane coming back from some of these places and you've seen people in so much pain who, you know, $20 could transform the life of, um, you know, or really help them out of a tricky situation. And then you get, you know, you're walking through a busy, you know, city street in Melbourne maybe the next day and you're hearing someone on the phone complaining about, you know, how, I don't know, the, the person didn't do a good renovation of the kitchen. And it's, these sorts of things happen when you have that contrast so regularly how have you come to not hate privilege? <laughs> yeah, so look, those contradictions are in me too. We all live in a bubble. You know, Adam Smith, years ago when he wrote um, The Wealth of Nations and his first book, The Theory of Moral Sentiment, said um, uh, back then, this is the 1600s, uh, uh, a person sleeping in his bed can hear of a disaster, say in China, I think he said, where... Hundreds of thousands of people will die, but he will sleep soundly in his bed that night and really not give it another thought. And he was reflecting on how does moral sympathy, his word, or moral empathy, actually really grip humans when we are so captured by a bubble and uh, don't uh, do the small thing. $20 can save a life, and it's easy for all of us to give, and why don't we? Um, so... There is uh, absolute truth in what you say. I, I recognise that even in myself. Um, the uh, protective boundaries where you just want a safe and good life, uh, a, a life that doesn't ethically draw you out of your comfort zone, uh, that's, that's a reality. That's something that I try and address in myself and when I'm speaking to others. Tim, I wonder... Also, that disjuncture that you find in the church, too, that there must be anyone who does the sort of work you do would have moments when you go back to the church and you find that people are acting no differently, that they are not living with more compassion. How, how do you reconcile those kinds of... Um, the, sort of the, the lack of living out what we profess to believe um, along with where you see the church going, I guess, given that, that there is a disjuncture there? Yeah, look, the question for the church is always how much do they know about Jesus? Uh, and uh, at one level, what you said can be very true, even of Christians. I, I would explain that in the sense that um, we think we're worshipping Jesus, but it, the real idols are power or sex or money or a self-image and... Uh, when you worship created things, not the creator, they distort your calling, they uh, close up your empathy. But having said that, to be fair to the church, um, if you look at giving from Christians, it is phenomenal compared to the secular world. That's not to say they're morally superior or righteous, but uh, volunteering, 
giving. Uh, and I, I'd explain it this way. There's very few groups in society now that meet week by week for a morally, spiritually serious sermon topic, who pass around an offering plate and give, who then organise and say, what are we doing about the homeless? Or uh, um, Community is fragmented profoundly and uh, I think it's remarkable that so many churches do that. Now there are secular groups that do it too but it's particularly distinctive yes. of Christian churches. I agree we've, often, we've said before that it's one of our great subversive acts is actually just to gather together every Sunday morning. Yeah. Uh, absolutely I, I think we are social beings and uh, my criticism is that both the left and the right have reduced us to individuals and a so yes. sovereign state. So sovereign individualism. Mm -hmm. So 40% of Australians now have a meal alone, only with the TV or their computer. Uh, is there any wonder we have epidemics of youth suicide mm -hmm. and uh, uh, a disease in the way we're living because that individualism. Of the left, it was um, sort of cultural, uh, starting in the 60s, the chemical liberation and sexual liberation with the only goal being pleasure mm. uh, will somehow set me free. With the right, it's the individualism of uh, economics. Mm. Just plug your preferences into this thing called the market and it will spit out consumer goods mm. which somehow will satisfy you. Mm. Um, so I think meeting together and reminding ourselves that we are interdependent, that we need community, that... We're made in the image of a community God. That's really what Trinity means. Mm -hmm. the, the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit, self-serving, self-surrendering, loving, going on mission, is community. Mm -hmm. So the truest thing we can say about ourselves is we are made for community. Mm -hmm. And the individualism I see, mm -hmm. the fruit of left and right, uh, is actually devastating. Interesting, uh, interestingly, in Australia at the moment, in this context, recording now in, in, in late 2019, we're in a situation where, you know, as, as you've, you've touched already on what's going on overseas, but even in the, the specifically Australian context, we have the ongoing um, appalling treatment of refugees, of asylum seekers in offshore detention. We have um, the refusal to acknowledge the statement from the heart of Indigenous Australians and the ongoing debate, which I've seen you on, on Twitter recently about whether or not we should even climb Uluru, like that's a, a right that we have. Um, we've seen ongoing social divides, economic divides, these sorts of things, and yet the biggest issue that's riled up Christians in 2019 has been a footballer's social media post and the idea that, that right to religion, right to say what I think and have an opinion and stand up for my religion is being... In, in, impeded on, you know, that, that people are, are being prosecuted for what they believe in. Does that dishearten you to see that a country that, that even in its own backyard has so much need and so, much, so many vulnerable people who really could use compassion and, and a sense of justice and yet we're just worrying about whether or not we can post to Instagram what we'd like to? Look, it really worries me that um, certain loud Christian voices have... Uh, burnt into the secular cultural mind that Christianity now is just about two things, two things that Jesus never mentioned, <laughs> homosexuality and abortion. Uh, that, that has become the defining thing of Christianity. Now, Jesus' signature was the reign of God is good news for the poor, the poor spiritually, the poor materially. Wherever you see the reign of God coming, the poor will flourish. 
uh, whether they're refugees or those on New Start. And I can quote uh, other Bible passages that start a bit like the one Israel uh, quoted. So in Malachi, uh, the Lord says, Woe to you, I am going to try the sorcerer, the adulterer, the perjurer. Sounds like Israel. And then it goes on and says, And those who defraud their labourers of wages, and those who oppress the foreigner in your midst, think refugee and TPV, and those who... Don't show justice to the widow and the fatherless. Think new start. <laughs> um, I think we're probably going to have for the next three years, because Scott Morrison has been so disarming about his faith, and I think that's a good thing, we're going to have three years of secular journalists thumbing through the Bible saying, what, is, what does Christianity actually teach? <laughs> what is its vision? Uh, I think that's going to be an opportunity, actually, because uh, the capture and... Uh, politicisation down to just two issues as the signature issues, uh, I don't think is the good news. It's not God loves us. His face isn't turned to us in anger because he gave us a list of rules and we broke some. It's a, a vision of God's love helping us flourish in all senses, particularly the poor, and dealing with that wiring I was talking about for greed and malevolence that imposes cruelty that's why i do believe in redemption and grace we do have to deal with that mm. so that that for me is now an opportunity to discuss what what christianity really teaches we're probably hopeful there that the media will also go to multiple voices to hear christian they've tended to go to just a few of the loudest voices and when and we hope too that when they thumb through the bible they can also also look at those who have spent a lot of time thinking about how to read the bible and how to interpret it as well so i guess i see that as one of the dangers of of the media suddenly suddenly picking up a bible and thumbing through and then picking up the phone and calling the australian christian lobby you know i i have concerns around where they find their voice but maybe maybe it might be an opportunity for more people to engage given that we have a, a certain democratization of media um, that that other people can enter the conversation totally agree with that I think um, we now uh, in a retribalizing world I think it's a backlash to both globalisation and to what I called individualism and the loneliness that comes from it. Because humans do need a tribe. You do need people who laugh at your jokes, who get uh, your point, who are there when you're vulnerable. Humans do need tribes. But when the tribe is just the narrowest uh, and loudest voice of uh, uh, really a, a political agenda, Australian Christian lobby, after all, is just a lobby uh, Christianity is not a lobby. Christianity is a vision, as Jesus preached it, of what heaven looks like on earth, of what uh, it would look like if God's will was done, of who would it include. Uh, I said, I think about Lyle Shelton saying he's going to claim Uluru. Look, Lyle, my God must love diversity. He made so much of it. And indigenous, sacred places... Their freedom of religion is just as to be protected as yours and mine, Lyle. Uh, so I think we can start to have those discussions now. Well, I think that is the, the frustration of, of many um, that I talk to, is the, the idea that the same people who wanted the burqa banned are now standing up for the freedom of religion to, to post things like that. And I suppose it's just an interesting moment in Australian context, regardless of where you sit in the political divide, 
where, you know, church attendance, everyone says it's dwindling. I haven't seen the stats lately, but that's the narrative everyone keeps talking about where, you know, there's this fear among some Australian Christians that we're being persecuted and pushed down into a minority. As someone who has seen legitimate persecution, Tim, what's your response when when you hear Australian Christians say they're being persecuted? It distresses me. Inside, I shouldn't say it, but I now will. I feel they wouldn't know persecution if they fell over it. Um, So there are issues to address here, like uh, in New South Wales, uh, you can be sacked for your religious views. Uh, A young woman wearing a hijab, uh, the boss can say, you're scaring the customers, you're sacked. We do need to actually tighten up some things because freedom of religion is good for Australia. Jewish, Muslim, Christian, Buddhist views of what flourishing is running their schools or hospitals with their particular vision of human care is actually good for democracy. It's good for society. So I want freedom of religion. Look, what I think is going on with some of the loudest Christian voices is it's the last gasp of uh, Constantinian Christianity. Uh, For the first 300 years, Christians never had power, didn't want power. (laughs) They loved, they served uh, they turned the world upside down because it was so novel to treat slave and free and what male and female as equal. Uh, and they cared for the pagan poor so much so that a, a Roman Caesar said, uh, they're growing because they're caring for our people. We're not even caring for them. Um, then Constantine declares Christianity the state religion. And Christians who are pacifist, as Jesus taught, love your enemy. Jesus might have been giving us more common sense if he'd said avoid your enemy, that's useful, or a bit harder, maybe try and tolerate your enemy, that's hard, but love your enemy? Jesus clearly believed that even your enemy carries the image of God. So you can't be violent, you can't destroy that person, you approach them with love. And if they hit you on the cheek, you turn the other cheek, you you suck it up. I, I love Martin Luther King. He uh, said, we'll match your capacity to hate us to the whites with our capacity to love you. And even when there were bombings and uh, assassination attempts, he didn't demonise whites. He said, our white brothers have made some mistakes, but we will. all, all we want to do is be part of the American dream of equality, which uh, uh, is, th- is a, a dream Martin Luther King accepts, not not tribalising and uh, going violent and going different into just our little, our little group. So I, I think this last gasp of Constantinian Christianity where we ran the show, we said we wrote the Judeo-Christian script and if you all shut up long enough and listen to us, you'd know the truth and you have to bow down and obey our interpretation of it. Well, those days have gone and that's actually, in my view, very good for Christianity to flourish again. Many people, I suppose, would, would be disheartened for a whole range of reasons. You know, perhaps uh, some on the social justice side of things might be disheartened because they see that the major Christian expressions don't seem to care about the social justice matters. They're more worried about the things we've spoken about. Now, perhaps the more conservative Christians um, might be might feel disheartened about the, the dwindling attendances and the idea that they feel culture is going, going to the dogs or whatever it might be. Um, generally, I, I think there is a, an element of fear, anxiety and, and disheartenment in, in 
a faith life in Australia at the moment. Certainly, that that's what I've experienced. Um, what 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 I guess is your perspective on that? Yeah, I I think um, the signature of our age is anxiety. I link that to the move to individualism and loneliness, and we are profoundly disconnected from one another with fragmenting communities. And into that vacuum steps fear and anxiety. And uh, I I said last night on Philip Adams' show, the opposite of faith is not doubt. I have doubts. The opposite of faith is fear. Uh, The Bible says 365 times, fear not, be not afraid, uh, because God is here. There is, God's got this. There is presence still in the universe, no matter how bad, and evil won't win. Uh, so don't be afraid. And when I hear the loudest Christian voices who uh, say we've got the strongest faith, looking like the most fearful people, I go, something's wrong. <laughs> something's wrong here. Um, you know, I, I like quoting Gandhi, who said, we think the enemy's hate. It's not. The real enemy is fear. Fear of the other leads to hate. Fear when we're locked into our individual worlds. Fear intensified by social media. So social media is a giant washing machine that sorts us into like-minded groups through its algorithms. And in a like-minded group, we whip up ourselves into a frenzy that we're the victim, that someone's trying to do us over. When you move a person out of their like-minded group into an unlike-minded group where they actually listen to another person's story, it's amazing how quickly they'll move to compromise and acceptance because it's very hard not to love someone when you hear their story. Uh, and And it shifts you. It shifts you profoundly. And that's what the genius of the Christian faith was for 300 years, saying whether it's economic or slave categories, uh, gender categories, racial categories, actually we're one. And we are equally loved by God. Uh, So that's the answer to fear. You've touched a few times already on um, the problem of individualism and uh, I guess the loneliness that comes from that and, and the cultural move towards this fragmented society. Could you just talk about, I guess, what you think has, has led to that and where you think we are with that right now? Because I, I know that there is a... I, I, I've quoted this before, but a good friend of mine who hates that I quote him on this, he, he said a few years ago that, that he thinks... But you're going to. I'm going to do it anyway. Well, he said a few years ago that he feels like we're hermits living metres away from each other. And, and I was struck by how, how true that was compared to the communal living that we see in the early church, the communal living that we see in the healthiest and most flourishing societies of all time. Um, but, but today it is such a, you know, you, you're in your house, if you're a teenager, you're in your room in your house, everyone's just in their space on their own. And I'm just wondering what, what your perspective on how we got yeah, there is. Yeah, look, historically... Uh you can be united when you have an enemy. And in, in um, Cold War times, you know, the West had more cohesion because there was a real enemy, the Soviet Union and the threat. And when that enemy disappears and the wall comes down and we declare it's the end of history, now we're going to have liberal democracy and live in peace and suddenly discover we actually need enemies. And I... I think on the militant, let's say, Christian right and the militant secular left, there are small minorities who want to fight. In the middle, I call it the exhausted middle, <laughs> there are those of us who want to live together. 
and we don't actually have to buy into an enemy. Those, those extremes need enemies and they set the agenda and they keep it going and, and uh, the fight's going. Um, so I think um, the loss of an enemy, certainly after Cold War, I think social media, which I've just described, which promised us community and communication. Now, I, I wouldn't let young people onto social media until they're 18. I actually think it's profoundly disorienting. So the CEO of Cambridge Analytica uh, in, a, in a BBC sting actually said, um, we can work for you. It was a, a BBC journalist pretending he was a Sri Lankan politician inviting them to come in. Um, don't worry about facts, we just make them up. He said that. Humans are only motivated by fear and hope. Fear is much stronger. And because we had 50 million Facebook likes that Cambridge Analytica got, we know more about these humans' fear and hopes than they know about themselves and their partners know about them. In other words, it was a claim to being God. We know, omniscience. And we will micro-target messages of fear and hope under the big political mainstream uh, press and debates and they won't even know why they're voting the way they are because of this micromanaging, thanks to the algorithms. So at one level he got it right, fear and hope are the two buttons to push. Increasingly in a retribalizing age, it's fear and it fragments us. It leads to individualism, to hermits living close to one another. Mm. I, I wonder how then I, I think the church is really as as community of faith, community following the way of Jesus, we're called to subvert the system a bit that way to actually call attention to this sort of thing, to the way that we are not free. Because what you're really describing is a society that is not free, that is plagued by its own fears and being played. You know, How, how do we then... Um, what are some of the best ways you know or that you've seen, whether here or elsewhere in the world, that subvert that? Yeah, I, my motto at St Kilda, and I'd say this to uh, Christians and their churches uh, to think about, was committed at the core and open at the edges. So you need a core to know your identity in Christ, in faith. Uh, you then need that core to be open at the edges so it's inclusive, that it's coping with difference, that it's inviting people into community. And uh, in my church ministries over 20 years, we did anything that created community. Um, when I rant and rail against the pokies, pokies now have captured community. They go up in greenfield sites as the first building built because state governments get community on the cheap. You get the pokies in, so then you get a cheap community centre and cheap meals. But 50% of every dollar going through a pokies comes from an addicted person who has no free will. When the stupid statement, gamble responsibly, it's like saying you, you shoot up heroin responsibly. Um, so the creating of community, the overcoming of the fear, I think people are still very attracted to Jesus. When you look at his way of ministering, he didn't say to the disciples now, 12 months of uh, New Testament ethics or systematic theology and then you'll be ready. He said, let's go on the road, live in community, let's see what God does. Let's encounter people, whether it's the party of the Pharisees, heavy duty people, or whether it's lepers, 
uh, or demoniacs. Let's actually live this, walk this, live it communally. Um, I think that that model is still very refreshing. That's a, it's an interesting vision uh, that, that would require quite a countercultural way of being, quite a countercultural way of living, um, I suppose, uh, to, to what most of us are, are used to doing. Well, we are at Byron Bay, so... Well, <laughs> at the moment we are, and that is a, an easy place to be a little bit countercultural and, and out of the rush a bit, I suppose. But, but there is certainly a sense in which the, the culture we are in is... It's almost like... Um, uh, I remember when I was a kid and we got a treadmill... I would start running on the treadmill at like the eight speed. I don't know if they were kilometers an hour, I doubt it, but it's just eight speed. And I'd do that for 30 seconds and then I'd go, f- I, I, can go I can go faster. Suddenly it's at nine speed. I can go faster than this. And I wanted to see how fast I could run. So I eventually kept pushing the treadmill up to it was nearly its top speed. And I fell down on the treadmill and hurt my head quite badly. Have not been on a treadmill or really gone for a run since then. But my, my, <laughs> my point is I think there is this sense of that in, in culture that we're always culturally pushing the, the button up. We can go faster. We can fit more in. We can do more. We can uh, even, you know, physically, we can fit more people into this space. You know, we can do, like, fit and, more and, in, do and, more. And the whole agenda of productivity, which means doing more with uh, labour and more with inputs. Therefore, mm. only when we're more productive can you get a wage rise, is exactly that treadmill. Undergirding it is, I think, the great um, plausible lie of the culture, which says that richer I am, the happier I'll be. Well, I can introduce you to a lot of rich people who are very unhappy. But we all, we all get on that treadmill to become richer. Mm. Uh, and that sense of our whole energies being absorbed uh, so that we can wear the right brands or drive the right car or have a story to, to tell our neighbours that we went on a better overseas trip <laughs> to somewhere is the treadmill. It is a treadmill. And I think it's why Jesus um, literally talked about wealth uh, so much laying not up treasures on earth but in heaven being not anxious about what you eat how did jesus anticipate master chef <laughs> and my kitchen rules about not being anxious about what you wear how did he in anticipate victoria's secret and and the brand labels i mean it's as relevant then as today that uh, we get on this treadmill Mm. Actually, one of my favourite stories that I've heard you tell some time back was when you were waiting for a hamburger or something to be at a fast food joint and, and you were in a hurry, you had somewhere to go and you went and asked why it wasn't ready and they said to you behind the counter, I'm sorry, sir, we have to cook the food. <laughs> and, and every time that I find myself impatient now since then, this is some years back I heard you say this and, and I, I remind myself of that, they have to cook the food. You know, why am I in such a hurry? You know, can I actually notice what they're doing and I think that applies to community too. I've spent a, a bit of time the last few days talking to some Aboriginal friends and that same that message has come through from all of them. You need to take time to listen. You know, If we're going to build relationships, if we're going to break down walls between people, we need to take the kind of time it takes. It needs to take the time it's going to take and we need to let go of our, our set goals and, and quick agendas and fast food and just take the time. We have recorded a, a conversation about being slow church but I think a lot of what you're saying taps into this. What if we actually step back from this and take the time? Totally agree with that and you know, in my life I, 
Like most people sort of do time calculations, all we've got in life is time. So if you think someone's wasting your time, they're a thief, really. <laughs> so then we move very quickly to the equation, time is money. <laughs> and uh, actually, time and, you know, there's uh, two, two Greek words for a chronos, which is chronology, we get time from, and kairos, which is this idea of God's time and something that happens spiritually and is lasting, a kairos moment, something that actually you wait and fast and meditate and pray and converse with people rather than, you know, am I being productive? Uh, this kairos t sense of time, I think we have to recover. As someone who was a CEO, though, I mean, not many CEOs are known for living contemplative, um, you know, uh, quiet and measured lives, grounded lives. Most CEOs are known for being in the office first thing and, you know, not getting home till the kids are asleep and it's late at night um, and going from meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting. As a CEO, and, and is that being a part of the life you've lived, how have you continued to live counterculturally and not let yourself, I suppose, get swept up in the... The, the stream of, of busyness? Yeah, I haven't always done this successfully, but I uh, have maintained my morning devotions and meditation and um, they are incredibly important for me. Um, I wasn't a CEO that got in first and left last and I tried to say to my staff that um, what you're doing here is important, but what you're doing in your private time with family and community building, that's really important. So, you know, I describe it in terms of um, two ladders. One ladder is the career ladder and uh, every rung we climb, um, more money, uh, maybe more social status and we think it's, we're climbing that ladder and get to the top. Many have got to the top and gone, gosh, how empty, how pointless. As uh, Thomas Merton once put it, what if you spent your life climbing the ladder to get to the top and then discovered it's leaning against the wrong wall? <laughs> um, the other ladder is the ladder of calling or vocation. And that starts with, what is, what is it that if I don't do it, I'm going to be poorer and the world is going to be, going to be poorer? What is it that is my bliss? Um, and it may be your music, your art, your volunteering, your community building, things that you're not ever going to be paid for. But it's actually your calling. And if you don't do it, you're going to be poorer and the world is going to be poorer. And if you just take the career promotion ladder, yeah, better pay, but it may pull you away from your calling, from what it is that you are called by God to do. So the countercultural subversive story you're talking about of Christian faith, I think, is actually choosing another ladder. It's a fascinating way to look at, at vocation. It's something that if you don't do it, you'll be poorer and the world will be poorer. I've not heard it phrased like that before. And I know that is the, the wrestle of, of many people who, because you feel like there's... I, I think most people don't really want to be rich. They just want to be free of the economic anxiety. They want to be able to go out for dinner with friends and not worry, can I afford this? It's that anxiety again that just comes through. And um, I know money is one of the strongest forms for it. 
Yeah, but we, we I, I think you're right, people would say that, but they get caught very quickly. You know, the most extreme example is J.D. Rockefeller, fabulously rich, and a journalist uh, stopped him and said, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money does it take to make a man happy? And Rockefeller famously answered, just a little more. And I think we get caught on this treadmill because we confuse cost of living with cost of lifestyle. Um, cost of lifestyle is, you know, it's a fundamental right to at least have a holiday once a year in Bali. <laughs> Whereas it used to be just down on the Mornington Peninsula when we grew up as kids and we were happy as. Uh, we then lose perspective because we only compare up and someone's always doing better and so we're anxious. And if we compare down, we suddenly go, how blessed am I? And I can be generous and I don't have to keep running on the treadmill. So I think you're right in what people say, but I think the culture shapes them in a very different direction mm. back onto that treadmill. Well, the, the reason I was leaning in that direction was because uh, obviously working in charity for a long time, you would know how hard it is to get Australians to, to donate. Um, you've spoken on record about Australia's foreign aid and and how disgraceful it is that a country that likes to imagine it's a generous country and its its ethos, its government does not match that in its its um, its international aid. Um, but on top of that, I, I've also heard you speak before that Australians are really good at giving money individually when there's Australians involved in an incident, but when there's like a, a tsunami or something overseas and we don't have an Australian face to put on it, it's hard to get a dollar out of them. So I'm, I'm just wondering, this anxiety about money, how have you seen it? drastically uh, drastically prevent our ability to help those who need it most? Yeah, my father, um, who died at 97, was a teacher, um, turned down career promotions because he just wanted to stay in the classroom, always gave away 10% of his income on a teacher's salary because he felt blessed. I'm much richer than him. Our generation is much richer, but uh, we're giving... 0.35% of our incomes, that's the Australian average now. Uh, we know that uh, income millionaires, income, not wealth, income millionaires last year, 43% of them didn't make one charitable donation. Mm. Um, this sense that the culture says always a little more uh, is very strong and uh, in subverting that culture we again have to find... Uh, our purpose under God, the generosity and joy that comes from find, finding our calling, building community, um, building it with different sorts of people, um, and and speaking up for the people mm. Jesus spoke up for. You, you actually often are described as a prophet, and I wonder, you know, sometimes we are criticised in work for saying, well, what are you doing getting involved? You know, the church and politics need to stay s separate. You know, and I've, I've heard you speak about, you know, the, the, the problems with both the left and the right and needing to be more issue-specific. Issue Where do you see the role of the church in the, in the public square? Yeah, I think Christianity is public. Jesus was crucified publicly with King of the Jews. He was executed by Romans. If it was just a Jewish execution for blasphemy, he would have been stoned to death. Uh, so he was clearly a threat to the Pax Romana, which was the peace of Rome, where uh, Caesar Augustus had up tablets that are saying, here's the good news, or evangelium's the word in Greek. 
the Caesar is Lord, Kyrios, and the peace of Rome is here. And the Christian message was profoundly political. No, Jesus is Lord, and the good news is about his reign of God, not, not Augustus's. So when Christians say, oh, don't be political, they, they better tear up their Bibles. <laughs> um, now, it doesn't mean being partisan political. I always say, don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. I think Jesus... Um, chose the narrow road he warned us against the broad road Mm -hmm. Um, but it certainly means being political in the sense that politics is just about who has power and gets what they want and who misses out thank you and uh, uh, the gospel addresses that as well as addressing the personal issues of my heart it addresses both Um, so and I'm often reminded when I hear, particularly conservatives today, talking about their hero, William Wil- Wilberforce, evangelical conservatives, and I remind them that Wilberforce was opposed by evangelicals. They said abolishing of slavery is political. Jesus nor Paul said anything about it. That's politics. Stick to a spiritual message, Wil- William. Um, it seems to me we like our... Christian heroes when they're dead. Yes. When they're alive, they're trouble. <laughs> they are trouble. It's fascinating you say that. I, I heard a few messages a few years ago when Donald Trump was initially sworn in as president and had a bust of Martin Luther King in his office. And uh, I, I heard a few people speaking about how interesting it is that, that Trump was speaking of the virtues of Martin Luther King because he no longer posed a threat. You know, all these years on, he no longer poses a threat to, to Trump and that message. Whereas if Martin Luther King was alive today, I'm not sure Donald Trump would like him all that much. And in fact, there probably would have been a rally or two that would have made headlines about what Donald well, Trump had Martin said. Martin Luther King's colleagues back then, Congressman John Lewis, who marched with him, is saying exactly that to Trump, that mm. you have chosen to get re-elected by dividing the nation and dividing it on race. I'm sure Martin Luther King would have something to say about that. Do you see anywhere in the world, though, because we're seeing the rise of this this everywhere at the moment, uh, at least in the Western world, do you see anyone worldwide using power well? Look, I think, um, though he's run into some trouble, Emmanuel Macron was seeking to find uh, a middle way, uh, staving off um, the National Front and the racism and some of the uh, statist policies of the atrophied left, which... uh, uh, themselves were a form of sovereignty of only the individual and the state. When it's only the sovereign individual, it does lead to authoritarian states, actually, because we need to flourish, have different visions of associational life, of cooperatives, of communal life, with their own vision and their own lo- logic and their own power. Um, when it's just the individual and the state, we lose power to authoritarians. I think Macron was trying, in his own way, to do that. Um, I love Jacinda Ardern. Why can't Australia become a dependency of New Zealand and she be our (laughs) Prime Minister? (laughs) I'd be in favour of that. I think there's many who'd be on board with that idea. Um, But it it is interesting that that, that those are the minority stories at the moment that we've seen, I mean, most recently in the UK, although that was, Boris Johnson was more of a parliamentary decision rather than a public decision, but Brexit was certainly a, a public decision with, with Donald Trump, obviously, in Australia, we've seen it as well, that there is this this uh, movement towards quite an aggressive conservatism, um, or, you know, almost like an angry conservatism. Now, you are one of the few public figures who does not align with that. I'm not suggesting you align either way, because you are always quite intentional not to 
not to be a partisan person, not to take a side in a world where there are very, very few people who still don't want to take a side. What, why are you so passionate about not taking a side on that stuff? Um, because I think the, the visions of left and right are equally deformed. <laughs> I, I prefer to go with the vision of the reign of God that Jesus preached. I think that vision, <coughs> excuse me, is much more life-giving and um, uh, it requires, as I said, going deeper, saying that the right have a truth. They say there are unintended consequences if you just have radical change, if it breaks up community and continuity. Look, it was the Tories who supported Wilberforce on the abolition of slavery, not the Whigs, who were the progressives. Uh, it was Earl Shaftesbury, a Tory, getting children out of factories, and the Tories decrying the Industrial Revolution, the uh, enclosure of common lands uh, and forcing people uh, who could be independent into subsistence farming because they had this sense of continuity and dignity and community. Um, and we forget that. The Whigs, the progressives, were opposing it. Uh, so I, I think um, left and right both have uh, uh, underdeveloped views of both the human nature and what a truly political vision that allows us to flourish is about. That's why I, uh, I feel strongly about not being captured. I like that word, not being captured, because it is, it is interesting when you have been captured, how if you hear somebody express the alternate viewpoint, instead of engaging with it, you just fire up inside. And, and I think everyone knows that feeling. I know that feeling all too well. When I hear someone who might be on the other side to what I believe on those things, it's not. It's not a conversation. It's instantly a a tri, You know, it's the re-tribalism you're talking about. Um, look, just as a, as we move towards wrapping up, Tim, I, I know that um, I'm not quite sure how I want to frame this question, but what I'm interested to get your thoughts on is that we are in a country at the moment in a, a time where, as we've discussed, um, the f- faith has been perhaps in some eyes becoming less popular, less less relevant maybe. I mean, not less relevant in terms of its message, but less relevant in terms of the place it holds in society. Um, and a lot of people have dismissed the idea of, of a faith life because they just think it's a bunch of garbage. I mean, you go on any any comments or section on any articles to do with faith and you just get hundreds of them about, like, I don't have an imaginary friend, and as if that, that one idea of do you intellectually believe that, yes or no, determines the entirety of it. That that's all it is. It's just an intellectual decision. Yes, I believe there is meaning. No, I, d- I believe there is not. Obviously, as someone who's lived their life in the depth of, of this tradition and in mystery and love in compassion in justice, in, in all these things, which I'm sure are the underpinning things of the kingdom of God you're talking about, the reign of God you're talking about, what do you think the, the reason for someone, for a young person, old person, to explore a faith life, to, to make sure that this still holds relevancy in their life? Because the, the answers that are given are, so you don't go to some bad place after you die, or the, so you go to a good place after you die, or, you know, because it's tradition and that's how we've always done it. And none of these answers seem to be working for people anymore as to why I'll in, I'd engage with these deeper questions. So what, why should somebody engage with these deeper questions and, and explore a faith journey. So people uh, are made to worship and they'll worship something, whether it's, you know, 
power the market, sex, self-image, whether it's social justice or environment. If I had made uh, my God simply social justice or the environment, I would have burnt out. Uh, I believe in those causes passionately, but I would have burnt out. Let me take you back to Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King and the Christian faith undergirding the civil rights movement allowed it to transcend just the resentment, frustration and hate. It allowed it to actually say, we too are flawed and, and, and sinful. Therefore, we will not demonise our enemy. Even the white redneck racists gave them every reason to demonise them. It was faith that sustained that movement, lifting it above, saying we're all held accountable to God. Faith is profoundly important, I think, to worship something beyond just our cause and our self-righteousness, even our virtue signalling. You'll burn out. Uh, you'll end up resentful. Um, in finding that faith, uh, I think it really is a matter of going deeper, saying... I'm not just a materialist. There is some purpose to my life. There are intuitions, rumours of angels, experiences that are transformative. And being open to that. That's what I've tried to do in my, my life of faith and uh, I can say it has sustained me. And lastly, Tim, I mean, the, the, you might have answered this to an extent, but on a, on a more societal level, we've spoken a lot about the fear that's in our culture, the fear that, that is evident everywhere at the moment and the anxiety. As an alternative, what is it that you see that gives you hope? Look, I believe uh, that God hasn't given up on us, that um, God has still got this. And uh, that, for me, is enormously powerful to say um, I can align myself with that hope. Uh, I can see... Uh, Green shoots in the concrete jungle, I can see uh, uh, moments of transformation, a number of moments that say uh, there is a way forward. Uh, and it allows me to forgive. You know, I get hurt, I get attacked by people. I'm reminded of Desmond Tutu who said, no future without forgiveness. Um, to be able to forgive, to go on loving... Uh, that that is why faith is the resource for me to do that and practice living that way. Well, you've lived a pretty extraordinary life, Tim, and you've been a bit of a beacon, I think, for many of us in, in many of these ways. So uh, thank you so much uh, for, for joining the On The Way podcast. Thank you. A delight to be with you. And we will be back with another episode of the podcast shortly. <laughs>